If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Chocolate can be your strength. I've been searching high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. So I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. But you need to eat five or more ordinary dark chocolate bars every day to match the flavanols consumed in most of these studies. Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate Cocoa Powder and beverages deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and to order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today's podcast will be a deep dive into keto. We're going to talk about the low-carb, high-fat, carbohydrate, I'm sorry, the low-carb, high-fat, carbohydrate-restricted diet with the author of a great new book, The Case for Keto. He's known to many of you. He's been a frequent contributor here on Intelligent Medicine because he's written some great books starting uh, in 2002. Uh, he wrote a very, very influential article in the New York Times Magazine. Some of you may recall it was a real game changer. It uh, featured a big picture of a juicy T-bone steak on the cover of the New York Times Magazine with the headline, what if it's all been a big fat lie? And uh, Gary Taubes has bucked the trend in nutrition uh, for a long time as an investigative journalist because the trend is towards avoiding fat, plant-based diets, uh, low saturated fat, avoiding cholesterol. Uh, but on this theme, he's written several books, The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat and Good Calories, Bad Calories. Uh, and now... Uh, he's written a, a wonderful compendium called The Case for Keto, Rethinking Weight Control and the Science and Practice of Low-Carb, High-Fat Eating. Gary, it's a pleasure having you back on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Ron. It's great to be here. And and your book is really a, a very scholarly tour de force of investigative reporting. Uh, it really uh, is a wonderful summation of uh, the history of how we've approached obesity and where we've taken a wrong turn uh, in terms of nutritional science. And of course, you know, and you point out in your book that the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology recently doubled down on their latest lifestyle guidelines, and they're not hospitable to low-carb eating or the introduction of meat and saturated fat. So uh, what say you to that? Uh, that's a good question. I'm constantly amazed by the, the 
cognitive dissonance in the field of medicine. So we have a, a medical research community as you said that's been advocating low-fat diets for, for 50 years now, uh, vegetable oils instead of uh, fats from animal sources, uh, mostly plants or all plants now. And throughout that period, the populations they've been recommending for have gotten ever heavier, fatter, and more diabetic. So we've had coincident with this advice uh, epidemic increases in the prevalence of obesity and diabetes. And if you're practicing family medicine in this day and age or internal medicine, it means that your waiting room is full of people who suffer from obesity or diabetes or hypertension, which means they can't control their weight or they cannot control their blood sugar or they cannot control their blood pressure. And we have known for 200 years now that you can, in effect, fix this by restricting the carbohydrate content of the diet. So the carb, carbohydrates are the problem, not the fats. And, and what I tried to do with this book is, uh, well, explain that thinking. Why those of us who have come to ex embrace that thinking find it so compelling? And one of the things I did is I interviewed over 120 physicians uh, who have come to think like this and who prescribe it to their patients. And my rough estimate is they are, you know, among the tens of thousands worldwide who have now made this shift. And what they see in their patients is their patients get healthy. So. It, is it fair to say, and you point this out in the book, that nutrition science is dominated by the thinking of lean, healthy people? And, and they counsel moderation and they rail against fad diets. You know, they just say, uh, you know, eat uh, a plant-based diet, uh, avoid junk. Uh, you know, maybe we should be more circumspect about our consumption of uh, sugar and refined carbohydrates. Uh, but um, what about that? Well, so since the 1930s, when uh, the American medical community. This wasn't the case in Europe. In the U.S., the American community embraced this idea that the obesity is caused by excess consumption of calories. So what that means is that the only difference between lean people, people who can stay lean their whole life and people who maybe start off lean but then become obese is that the latter ate too much and the former didn't. And to me, this is kind of stunning, but this is still how the thinking goes today. And one of the articles I cite in the book is a New York Times article from a couple of years ago in which uh, it was announcing a new gene that had been discovered that was linked to obesity. And they quoted a British researcher, very prestigious, saying, in effect, that the gene determines who will reach for the donuts if a plate of donuts is put on a table in a you know, in a meeting, the implication being the people who can't control their weight will reach for the donuts, and that's why they're fatter. I, I'm pretty um, sure quite a lot of us have that gene. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the argument would be the gene doesn't make us reach for the donuts. The gene makes us accumulate fat. And so when we embrace this idea that obesity was a disorder of overeating, 
the obesity research community en masse turned away from the idea that it was a fat accumulation disorder. So those people, you know, if somebody one, you know, you have a friend or a sibling or a relative who weighs 250 pounds and you only weigh 150, you don't think of them as having an eating disorder or taking in more calories than they expend. You think of them as people who, for whatever reason, accumulate fat too easily and can't shed the fat they accumulate. So there had always been a counter argument that obesity is a fat accumulation disorder. It's a disorder of the hormones and enzymes that regulate fat accumulation, which weren't worked down to the 1960s. But by that time, obesity was being, the field of obesity was being dominated by psychologists and psychiatrists who were trying to figure out how to get fat people to eat less. Mm -hmm. So the whole science got perverted back in the 1930s. And what happened is you had all these lean physicians, lean, healthy doctors who thought, well, I'm lean and I eat in moderation and I exercise. They actually may or may not have exercised back then, but we'll say they did. And therefore, if everybody ate moderation like I do and exercise like I do, they would be lean too. That's sort of a natural assumption. It's not true, but it's a natural assumption. So the diet advice we got were these lean physicians basically telling the rest of us that we should do what they do. And yep. what they don't understand, I'm going to just finish cool. this thought, then I'll... What they didn't understand, they don't understand, is that those of us who fatten easily, which is a kind of term used by the 1950s era diet doctors, those of us who fatten easily will get fatter and be hungry if we eat like they do. So it works for them, doesn't work for us. And what's interesting, in, in the book, uh, you often use uh, the, the first person plural, we and us, uh, so do you, does this apply to you? Is this something that you've uh, undergone experientially? Uh, you had a personal transformation around the, the low-carb paradigm? Oh, well, I think it applies to everyone eventually who buys into this. And that's, again, part of this thinking. If, if you're lean and healthy, let's say you're a 30-year-old physician, you've just come out of med school, you like to run marathons, um, and you're lean and you eat exactly the diet that the, you know, the health authorities tell us to eat, which is you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, legumes, animal products in moderation. Um, because you're already lean, you have no reason to think, to un think it doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? It works for you. Mm -hmm. so what you, you refer to this actually in the book is what you see is all there is thinking. You know? Yeah, this is a phrase that comes from the uh, Nobel laureate uh, uh, cognitive uh, behavioral researcher, uh, Richard Kahneman. What you see is all there is. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it, 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 it's in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And I really, it's whenever I'm trying to understand uh, cognitive dissonance, why I believe one thing and somebody who I whose intelligence I respect, believe something entirely different, the first thing I do is think, what are they seeing that I'm not seeing? And what am I seeing that they're not seeing? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you look at it from a different, a scientific perspective, science begins with the awareness, the observation that something, you see something 
that doesn't agree with your belief system. So you have a hypothesis, but you believe, and then you see something that conflicts with that. So your hypothesis is we should all eat, uh, you know, if we all eat in moderation of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, etc., we'll all be lean just like I am. But if you're already lean, it's hard to see anything that will conflict with that. Mm-hmm. If you're gaining weight easily, as many of us are, you know, most of us start to do eventually, and you could say, well, I'm already doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. And particularly if you have patients, so you're telling patients, you know, eat in moderation, eat less, exercise more, the whole fruits, vegetables thing, and they're getting heavier, they're getting fatter, and they're becoming more and more diabetic with each passing year. You're likely to think, well, first you're going to think they're not taking my advice, and that's what the medical community believes. They're non-compliant. Quote, they are non, and then nobody follows a diet. So they, they give dietary advice that doesn't work, and then when the people get fat anyway, they assume that they, nobody follows a diet because they're all getting fat anyway, rather than question their advice. But if the same thing happens to you, and you know you're following the advice, now you've got a conflict. Now you've got a, the observation that has to be Either the hypothesis is wrong or the observation is wrong, and you could trust your observation. So now you start questioning the hypothesis. Maybe my advice sucks. Hmm. Maybe I'm given the wrong advice. You know, maybe it's not that every patient I have is non-compliant. Maybe they're actually following the advice too, and it's failing them. It's clearly failing them, whether it's because they can't follow it or because... It doesn't work even if they do follow it. And now you have, Malcolm Gladwell described this as a conversion experience because he made fun in 1998. uh, uh, He did a piece on uh, obesity for The New Yorker, one of his first pieces ever for The New Yorker, and he kind of made fun of the fact that every diet book Mm -hmm. doctor tells a story like this. But the point is, if you don't have this experience, then there's no book to be written. There's no revelation to be had. And in our field, I had this, well, funny, I got into this research as a journalist. So I had no, um, I had no biases when I began. I had been eating, I'd been, we discussed off air, I'd been living in Los Angeles in Venice by the beach. I'd been eating a very low fat, mostly plant diet and working out an hour a day. You, you were just a, a stone's throw from the Pritikin Institute, which was the, uh, the temple of uh, low carb eating. I'm sorry, of I low was, fat eating, and you know, low fat, and a stone's throw from uh, a slightly shorter stone's throw from Gold Gym, mm-hmm. and uh, the Venice Boardwalk, and you know, they, what we did back then was eat very low fat diets and mostly plant diets, and you know, I assumed this was the healthiest way to eat. When I was gaining two pounds a year in my thirties. I just assumed this is the best I could do. And then I did, uh, when I was reporting the second of my investigative articles on uh, nutrition, this one for the journal Science, was on dietary fat, a um, uh, economist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, I was also simultaneously writing an article for a different publication on the mathematics of the stock market. This is the <laughs> life of a freelance journalist. Anyway, this economist told me that if I was writing about fat, I had to try Atkins. That's what keto was called before it became keto. He said his collaborator was at Wharton. 
business school and his collaborator's father lost 200 pounds on Atkins. So he said he did it. Maybe he's Asian American. He lost 40 pounds. He said he basically gave up white rice. Um, so I had, at the time I was unmarried, my parents had passed away, I had no children, I figured if the diet kills me, um, <laughs> nobody would really care all that much, maybe my landlord. <laughs> um, so I tried it as an experiment, um, and I switched from this very healthy, what I thought was a very healthy, low-fat, mostly plant diet to a, um, eggs and bacon for breakfast and you know, half a roast chicken or a steak with a salad or vegetables for lunch and the same thing for dinner and very large portion sizes. And I just went all out and, um, and I lost 25 pounds in hmm. six weeks. So much so that I stopped doing any aerobic exercise whatsoever because I had been doing all the aerobic exercise right to burn off the calories mm -hmm. I was consuming or so I thought so that I could continue to eat. Mm -hmm to satiety. Now I could eat to satiety and they seem to lose weight anyway. So it, it's this sort of, well, scientists would use the term anomalous observation. It made zero sense in the context of the nutritional understanding of the era. Well, and uh, I, I was going to chime in that conventional nutritionists would say that you need carbs for, for muscle and brain. Uh, they're the preferred fuel for the body's uh, energy metabolism. So yeah, how do we reconcile the that? Well, the line you get is we need about 125 uh, grams a day of carbohydrates to fuel the brain, and they are the primary fuel for the brain if you're eating a carbohydrate-rich diet. So this is where the nutritionists stop, and yet the textbooks will describe this correctly, and the, even the government uh, documents will describe this correctly. There's a, a dietary reference intakes guide that was put out, two volumes, um, in which they point out that uh, if you're not eating carbohydrates, so for instance, if you fast for several days, your brain doesn't shut down. Mm -hmm because you don't have carbs in your diet, your body just takes the fat that you start burning and converts the fat, your liver converts the fat to ketones, and it converts uh, some of the protein is broken down into amino acids, and now you can fuel the brain on a mixture of about 75% ketones, 25% glucose from either the protein or also from the glycerol that's released when... Uh, triglycerides are released from the fat tissue and broken down into fatty acids and, and, and glycerol. This is what's turned so, the switch. The, the, the switch happens when you make that uh, change the proportion of macronutrients and your metabolism goes to some like a kind of a primitive reserve metabolism that uh, humans have evolved because there were times of feast and there were times of famine and sometimes we had to draw down our fat stores. Well, we also did not have carbohydrate-rich diets until the, you know, the advent of agriculture mm -hmm. five, ten thousand years ago. So, for the first two million years of our evolution, we were living primarily on protein and fat. Um, so the argument is, and, and by the 1960s, researchers had worked out that they knew that a, a carbohydrate-restricted diet was metabolically a little different than uh, fasting because mm -hmm. in both cases you're 
your body is using protein and fat for fuel and getting by perfectly well on protein and fat for fuel. And this may indeed have been sort of the preferred metabolic state for the two million years of evolution. So one thing I discuss in the book and that sort of continues to mystify me despite what's going on sort of 20 years of thinking about this. Um, when you look at the textbooks, uh, again, the, the understanding of uh, fat metabolism, fat storage, and the hormonal enzymatic regulation of both uh, took until 1960 before technology was available that allowed it to happen. This was the radioimmunoassay that allowed endocrinologists to measure hormone levels in the blood accurately. Mm -hmm. That caused a revolution in medicine. Rosalind Yallo won the Nobel Prize for her part. Radioimmune assays, that whole thing, right? Yeah, her colleague Solomon Burson passed away, so he didn't get it. But by the 1960s, researchers now pretty much understood the hormonal enzymatic regulation of fat tissue, and it was a uh, uh, insulin plays a dominant role. So virtually every the hormone in the body works to get fat out of the fat tissue because the hormones are telling your body to do something. They're uh, causing some effect and they work to make the fuel available for that effect to happen, whether it's fleeing or fighting or reproducing or growing or repairing cells. So, uh, one hormone works against that. One hormone dominates fat storage and the use of fat for fuel, and that's the hormone insulin. So when you secrete insulin, you store fat, and when insulin drops, you mobilize fat, and your lean tissue will burn it for fuel. And this is textbook medicine. And the other aspect of textbook medicine, which is uh, the you know, the medical community, the obesity research community paid it almost zero attention to any of this because by this time they had decided that obesity was caused by eating too much. Mm -hmm. So they saw any hormonal explanation as an excuse for fat people to not do what thin people like them did naturally. Mm -hmm. So they ignored the physiology which said insulin is a dominant hormone. Even though people like Gallo and Burson said, look, insulin is the most lipogenic hormone. So maybe... A little bit of insulin dysregulation, a little bit of diabetes, in effect, causes obesity, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. George Cahill, who's a lead, I, I didn't put this in the book because, um, regrettably, I didn't read this article until after the book was done. I read it for the book I'm working on now, it's on diabetes. So George Cahill is the leading metabolism researcher in the United States in the 1960s. He's at Harvard. When he leaves Harvard, he goes on to um, run the be the science director for the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Um, Cahill is renowned for his studies of uh, long-term studies of fasting, in which he demonstrated that ketones were not pathological molecules, but were, hmm. you know, uh, absolutely necessary for the function of the human brain when we're not eating carbohydrates, and he should have changed how the medical community thought about ketones and ketosis, but they didn't pay attention. Right. And in the process, there's, I yeah. think what, what stops a lot of doctors around this is they think that 
you know, you talk, hear about this ketogenic diet, and we've learned in, in medical school, we were well indoctrinated that one of the most disastrous things you encounter in medicine is, is diabetic ketoacidosis. So they tend to conflate the two things, thinking, oh my goodness, do we, do we want to build up ketones in your bloodstream? That's what happens when diabetics uh, end up in the intensive care unit, you know, at death's door. And this is what's interesting about medicine is, again, I'm doing research now for a book on diabetes. I've been reading all the history. So just at the point insulin was discovered in 1921 and insulin therapy came in for diabetes, some uh, physicians at the University of Michigan had been testing, in effect, ketogenic diets for diabetes and, and reporting in the medical journals remarkable results. And it never caught on because once you started getting insulin therapy, you needed carbs in your diet to mm -hmm. balance yep. the insulin. And Elliot Jocelyn, who was the god of diabetes, had the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, mm -hmm. who was seeing an order of magnitude more patients than anyone else, and he was writing the textbooks, was always scared that, you know, the high-fat diet would precipitate diabetic coma, ketoacidosis. And other physicians were scared about this also, while simultaneously you had researchers, particularly in Germany and Austria, saying there's a dramatic difference between diabetic ketoacidosis and what you know we're now calling ketosis, which are low levels of ketones, comparatively low levels, that you get in very natural uh, you know, you get either during fasting or when eating a carbohydrate restrictive diet. And by the 1960s, one of the things Cahill pointed out is that um, the ketones you produce uh, feeds back on um, uh, the pancreas to inhibit or uh, regulate insulin secretion so that nutritional ketosis cannot develop into diabetic ketoacidosis. Mm -hmm. But none of this is communicated to the physicians in the field who learn basically, you know, one slice of 40-year-old science when they go to medical school. Yeah. And then they hold in on In a very cursory way. You know, you know, frankly, it, it we, we sort of get kind of a classics illustrated version of biochemistry on our way to becoming uh, basically uh, drug prescribers. That's kind of the summation of medical school education. Uh, okay, we're going to pause for a moment because we divide our podcast into two parts. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Our guest is Gary Taubes, author of a great new book. It's uh, really important if you want to understand uh, the keto diet, the case for keto, rethinking weight control, and the science and practice of low-carb, high-fat eating. And we'll return with uh, some more, uh, a practical look at uh, how we might uh, implement uh, a keto diet. This is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. <laughs> 